Hey, good morning. If you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Appreciate the worship team. Good to have Dan and Peggy back, and good to be with you this morning. One of the questions that came to mind as I looked again at 1 Corinthians 7 is the question, do you ever think, I need a change of scenery? And that can mean a lot of things to different people. That can mean a vacation, or that can mean some more radical changes in a person's life. And the question for all of us is, do you think you could be more holy or more happy if you just had different circumstances? Now, that doesn't mean there's never a place for change, because there is. But Paul is going to talk to us this morning. God is going to talk to us through what Paul has written here in 1 Corinthians 7. In this portion of Scripture that we'll focus on, verses 10 through 24, on that very issue, the issue of circumstances and how we look at our circumstances and whether or not um, a change in our circumstances is absolutely necessary for us to be more holy or or better people or for us to be truly happy and joyful and and at peace. And so I'd like to read for us, uh, actually beginning at the very beginning of the chapter through verse 24, and we'll look at especially verses 10 through 24 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, read with me uh, now. It says in verse 1, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift before God, or excuse me, from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? 
only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he was call, who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Let's pray again. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it is not just the word of men, but it is the very word of God. And it is a word for us, each of us individually and corporately today. We pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear that Holy Spirit, you would apply it to our hearts, that you would um, open our eyes to see so that we might see your glory and your goodness in it, that we might see your wisdom in it, that we might see your love in it, and that you would help us to receive it for what it is and help us to live in light of it and rejoice in light of it. So please help us and teach us and lead us during this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we've been going through the the books, Revelation, Acts, Daniel, and 1 Corinthians, but we've been spending a little more time in 1 Corinthians 7 because Paul is talking about things that are very relevant to where we are as a country with regard to marriage and sexual intimacy. And so I wanted to spend a little more time just helping us think through what he says in this chapter because of where we are as a culture and because of how the culture is impacting the church, those who prefer Uh, profess to be Christians. And what he's doing in this chapter is basically responding to a question from the Corinthians that is fundamentally the question, what about marriage? What about marriage and Christianity? How does it fit? How um, does certain aspects of marriage like physical intimacy relate to Christianity and the whole issue of wanting to be more holy and wanting to be more happy? And Paul is dealing with those things, and he starts out by arguing that marriage is a good thing, and most people are intended to be married, and that physical intimacy in marriage is a good thing, and it's not to be neglected for, quote, spiritual reasons or any other reasons. He says that holiness isn't simply a matter of avoiding things, it's a matter of pursuing love, and God has called married couples to love each other in this area of physical intimacy. He goes on to talk about the fact that he himself was not married, and there there are some blessings and benefits to not being married. And he'll go on, uh, and we'll see this next week, to talk about a present distress. He'll talk about distractions in marriage. And so he will say, in the portion of Scripture we just read, I wish all men were like me in certain ways because of certain benefits. Uh, Yet he goes on to say, not everyone can be like me. In fact, most people are intended to be married. Only those who have the gift of celibacy can be content single. 
and be okay with not being married and be okay with not having that physical intimacy. And so he says, if you're not in that place like I am, you don't have that gift, then you should pursue marriage. And we talked about the Christian pursuit of marriage last week. Well, Paul is going to begin talking about another issue that evidently they raised with regard to marriage, and that was the issue of divorce. And so that's what we want to focus on today is verses 10 through 24, where he talks about the issue of divorce. There's a website that you can go go to called Online Divorce California. And on the very website there, it says this. It says, start your online divorce in California without lawyer fees. Our system pioneered the online divorce industry industry, uh, for only $159. You can get a divorce, it says. And it talks about for 22 years, over 500,000 people have used our tools, providing the best service on the market, um, 100% satisfaction guaranteed, which is false advertising, uh, at least from the perspective of true satisfaction. But it's, what's interesting to me about this is on the very first page, they talk about valid reasons for filing for a divorce. And they say in California, there are two uh, basic kinds of divorces. One is no-fault divorce, and one is fault Divorce And obviously, um, no-fault divorce means you don't really have to have a good reason. You just have to be separated for at least a year. If no children are involved, you have to be separated for at least six months. And you can kind of move forward and say, oh, we just weren't compatible or whatever. Well, what is interesting is when you look at what they say are the fault grounds for divorce. They say, number one, if the spouse has committed a crime and been convicted of this. Number two, adultery. Number three, ill treatment in the family. And number four, if the spouse has intentionally left uh, for a long period of time. What's interesting about that is that is very much connected to the Judeo-Christian vision of what, are there, what grounds are there for divorce, the issue of adultery, the issue of leaving, which is what Paul is going to address in this chapter. Um, You can see the influence of Judeo-Christian values on that because that um, was inherited from a time when you had to have a reason for divorcing. Now you don't have to have a reason, but they still acknowledge the fact that those were the reasons why people uh, could claim that they needed to be uh, separated from their spouse. And so what we want to do today is we want to look at what Paul says and think about that. Because again, we're going back to the principle, do my circumstances really need to change for me to be more holy and more happy? And so we'll see, especially as we get to the end of this passage, how Paul is operating off of a principle that says basically no that your circumstances don't need to change. But when it comes to divorce, that's the big question, right? Maybe I'd be happier. Maybe I'd even be holier if I divorced my spouse, if I got out of this commitment one way or another. And so we want to begin with just uh, the marriage rule, which is what Paul highlights in verses 10 and 11. He highlights the fact that The Bible lays out the rule that God's intent from the very beginning was 
that one man and one woman would get married and they'd be married for life, which would mean at least until one of the uh, uh, spouses died. And uh, Henry Ford, at one point, after 50 years of being married, was asked what he thought about the rule uh, for a long marriage. And he said, it's just the same as in the automobile business, stick to one model and you'll have a long marriage. Well, the word stick is interesting because it does say in Genesis chapter 2 that the man is to leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. And the word cleave means be glued to or stick to his wife. So I don't know if uh, Henry Ford was quoting the Bible there or not intentionally, but that's really uh, the point is that God calls us to see ourselves as being um, permanently united to someone else whenever we get married. And that's why the disciples could say, maybe it's better not to get married if you really have to be that committed. Well, there's no doubt that God calls us to consider what we're doing when we get married. And unfortunately, in our day and time, many, many people aren't considering the commitment that God calls them to make. Look at verse 10 and 11. He begins by saying, but to the married, and in the context you realize he's really talking about uh, Christian marriages, marriages between two believers, but obviously what he says applies to all marriages. He says, but to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. And what he's saying is that he's quoting the Lord Jesus, when he says, not I, but the Lord is giving you these instructions, he's basically highlighting the fact that the Lord Jesus, when he was on earth, taught this. And I'm repeating what the Lord Jesus taught. And so if you were to turn to Matthew 19, you find an account, one of the accounts, where the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Uh, Is no fault divorce okay? And the Lord Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined or cleaved to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so there the Lord says, This is God's intent from the very beginning, from the point at which he created Adam and Eve, God's intent is for men uh, to, and women to marry one man, to marry one woman, and for them to be together for the rest of their lives. Well, Paul says, I'm repeating what the Lord said, and, and that's what you need to do. You need to embrace the rule, and this is the rule. And he goes on to say, but, in verse 11... Well, in verse 10 and 11, he says that the wife should not leave her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. So he says, either way, the wife shouldn't be filing for divorce, the husband shouldn't be filing for divorce. But he does, there's a parenthesis in there where he says, but if she does leave, speaking of the wife, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Which means if um, it's already taken place, and there, it could have already taken place for some believers. They have already divorced their wives, or the wife has already divorced her husband. Um, he says, 
if that has taken place or it does take place, if there are not legitimate grounds, then there there is no remarriage. In fact, they should be encouraged to reconcile, which means the the, the rule is no divorce, no remarriage. That, that's the rule, no divorce, no remarriage as a rule. And so Paul is starting with the teaching of the Lord Jesus to say, let me just remind you of the rule. But then he's going to move on to talk about an exception to the rule. And he'll, he talks about that in verses 12 through 16, where he says, an exception to the rule is when an unbelieving spouse deserts or abandons or leaves or divorces a believing spouse. Um, at one point, I don't, know, I don't know if this still is true or not, but in Albuquerque, New Mexico, there was a company called Freedom Rings, a jewelry for the divorced. And they provided a service where you could, if you were divorced, you could bring your wedding ring, and they would have this very special ceremony where they, where they would um, play music and serve champagne and give you uh, a sledgehammer and allow you to smash your wedding ring and either make it into a pendant for the woman or a golf um, marker for the man. And what they would say about that was, um, they would say, let's see, uh, there's the MC talking while this is going on. Uh, We will now release any remaining ties to your past by transforming your ring, which represents the past, into a token of your new beginning. Now take the hammer, stop for a moment to consider the transformation that is about to begin your new life. Ready? With this swing, let freedom ring. The key part that I want to focus on there is where they say, we now want to release any remaining ties to your past. That was what the whole ceremony was about. There are believers in Corinth who thought that maybe they should eliminate all ties to their past, including their marriage to an unbeliever. They had become a believer as a married person, and now they wanted to be faithful to Christ. They wanted to be holy. And maybe they had heard things like um, what was found in the Old Testament in Ezra and Nehemiah where there were uh, people in Israel who had married foreign wives and they were told they needed to separate from those foreign wives. Maybe they knew about those stories or maybe they had heard Paul say something like what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 where he said, do not be bound together with unbelievers For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Maybe they understood those kinds of things and thought, well, maybe I need to leave my past behind completely, and I need to divorce my spouse and just move on. And Paul does say in this chapter that we should not marry an unbeliever as a Christian. But he says here, if you are saved and you're already married to an unbeliever, do not change that circumstance unnecessarily. If the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, don't oppose it, don't fight it. But do not initiate it as a believer. 
Do not feel like you have to change that circumstance in order to be faithful to Christ and to please the Lord. And he talks about that in a very interesting way. In verse 14, he says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. What Paul is saying is, If there is a believing spouse in the family, that family is sanctified. That family is set apart to God, even if there's only one believing spouse. That there is a special care that God has for that family because of that believer in the family. That there is a special blessing on that family special blessing on that husband or wife who doesn't believe, a special blessing on those children because of that one believing spouse, that God is going to do things and bless that family in ways that he may not bless a family that doesn't have any believers in it. That was meant to be an encouragement to say, um, God is going to bless your family and bless your spouse. And you need to embrace that reality and realize that that is the reality. Now, you might take that to the point of saying, does that mean God guarantees that one day my spouse also will believe or that my children will believe? And obviously, Paul says in verse 16, how do you know a wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know a husband whether you would save your wife. He's highlighting the fact that we don't know what God's going to do in that regard. And so some might have argued, well, I'm going to fight my unbelieving spouse um, and try to keep them from leaving me because I think if they stay, they'll be saved. If they stay in the boat, they'll be saved. If they get out of the boat, they won't be saved. Paul says, no, there's no guarantee on that. There's no doubt there's great blessing and there is the hope that they will be saved. And so don't divorce them, but let them go if they choose to go. But know that if you're in a relationship as a believer and you're married to an unbeliever, God has a special care for your family and for your children and for your husband or your wife who isn't believing. And therefore... um, Continue loving that spouse, and maybe God will save them. That's That would be your prayer and our prayer as well. So to me, that's a great, great encouragement that Paul is giving. The, the picture that he paints there when he uses the word sanctify, it's the same word that's translated holy in various places. And uh, sort of like um, in Acts chapter 7, um, Stephen is recounting, the angel appearing to Moses in the burning bush. And God begins to speak to Moses, and he says, I am the God of your fathers. He identifies himself. And then he says, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Why was the ground holy at that moment, but it wasn't holy before? Because of the presence of God. Why is a family with a believing spouse in it, holy because of the presence of God in that family. How is God present in that family in a way that he's not present 
in a, a family that doesn't have any believers because God is in the believer. The presence of God, the real presence of God is in the believer. That's what it says at the end of 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? So God is present in the believer. And that family and that home is holy, set apart for God. And so Paul encourages the believers to realize that you don't have to end those marriages to be more holy. You need to embrace those marriages and embrace the reality of holiness in those marriages. And I just think that's a beautiful picture that Paul paints there. Well, he goes on and he talks about, in verses 17 through 24, the basic rule that he's, he's applying here. And um, there was a, a story that I've told before about, you might remember the story about the king who decided he didn't want to be king anymore. And he went to a local monastery and he talked to the head priest and said, you know, I'm tired of being king, tired of all these responsibilities. I just want a contemplative life. I just want to, you know, read my Bible and pray and just be away from the world, get out of politics, take it easy, tired of appearing on CNN or whatever. And the, the priest said, well, you know, you have to take a vow of obedience. And the king said, yes, I'll, I'll be willing to do whatever you tell me to do. And the priest said, okay, this is what I tell you to do. To do. I want you to go back and I want you to be the king that God has called you to be. I want you to be faithful in the place where God has put you. And that's the principle Paul is talking about here is our first impulse in any circumstance is how can I be faithful where God has me? Now that doesn't mean that there won't ever need to be a change of circumstances, but that should not be our first thought is how can I get out of these circumstances? My first thought should be how does God want me to be faithful in these circumstances? And then if circumstances need to change, and that will become apparent. What he does is he says six different times that um, these believers have been called. If you notice in verses 17 through 24, I'll just read verse 17. He says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches... The question is, what is he talking about being called? Well, if you look back in chapter 1, at the end of the chapter, I think we get a good idea of what Paul is talking about. In 1 Corinthians 1.26, Paul says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may, may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption." So that just as it is written, that him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, he says in verse 26, consider your calling. 
Then he says in verse 30, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Now, sometimes the Bible will talk in ways that are highlighting the call of the gospel when it's being preached. When the, when the good news is proclaimed that Jesus is an able and willing Savior for sinners, and, and sinners are called to repent and believe the gospel. That is one kind of calling. Paul here is talking about the secret work of the Spirit through that outward call so that people actually repent and believe. So there's the outward call and there's the inward call. And nobody responds in repentance and faith to the outward call without the inward work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts because we naturally are running from God. We naturally don't want God. We naturally hate God. We naturally think God is out to uh, rob us of all the happiness we really want. And we don't see God for who he is. We don't see our need for a savior because we think we're good enough as we are. And it takes God to raise us from the spiritually dead so that we see things as they are. We see ourselves as they are. We see God and Jesus as they are. It's just like when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus had been dead four days in the tomb. And it says that he came out of the tomb bound, which gives you the impression that he just kind of floated out. But he came out of the tomb one way or the other. And it was because he was called out of the tomb. He was specifically called by name. And he rose from the dead. And every one of us who have savingly repented and believed in Jesus have been called by name. And we've been raised from the dead. And the way we know we've been raised from the dead is that we repent and we believe. We don't want to be ruled by our sin anymore. We want to be ruled by Christ. And we're trusting him to save us from our sin and to lead us to all that our heart desires. Nobody does that apart from the sovereign, gracious work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And that's what Paul is saying is, if you've become a Christian, it's because of that special call of God on your life. And in this context, in 1 Corinthians 7, he's saying, some of you were slaves when that happened. Some of you were Jews who had been circumcised when that happened. Some of you were Greeks and were not circumcised. Some of you were not slaves when God called you in that way and you actually began trusting and obeying Jesus Christ. He says, the rule is don't think you have to change everything in order to please your Lord. You've repented of sin and now you're seeking to trust and obey the Lord Jesus. Don't think everything has to change. Don't think you have to divorce your unbelieving spouse or you have to stop having uh, physical intimacy with your spouse or all those kinds of things that he's been dealing with. But he's saying you can be faithful to Christ where you are. Now, the interesting thing is he does say at one point um, in verse 21, where you called while a slave, do not worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. Which means there's a sense in which he's saying the rule is Glorify God, trust God, obey God in whatever circumstances you find yourself when you come to Christ, when you believe in Christ. But that's not without exception. There may be good reasons to change something. And so we can say to slaves, 
You don't have to not be a slave in order to serve Christ. But that doesn't mean if you get the chance to be free that you say, no, thank you. He says, take advantage of that as well. So he's he's saying this is the rule, but there are exceptions to the rule. Just like with marriage, this is the rule, but in terms of how it may play out between believers and unbelievers, there is an exception as well. And so he's encouraging us to realize, and he says it three different times, in verse 18, verse 21, and verse 22. Um, Actually, I'm sorry, verse 17, 20, and 24, that each man is to remain with God in that condition in which he is called, because he's dealing with the, the underlying argument that's going on here in this church, is that maybe if I'm going to be holier, I need to change some things. Or if I'm going to be really happy, I need to change some things. And he says that is a fundamental misunderstanding of how God has called you and how God wants you to live in light of that. Now what he says in verse 19 is circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. What he means by that is ultimately... What is important is not your circumstances. The circumstance of being circumcised or the circumstance of not being circumcised. What's important is whether or not you're trusting and obeying God in those circumstances. And he says in verse 23 that it's because we've been bought with a price. You were bought with a price, do not become slaves of men. Which means whatever our circumstances, we are to live like we belong to Jesus. Because we do. He bought us. And the picture there is to buy a slave from the slave market and set them free. But to be set free as a Christian doesn't mean I'm set free to do whatever I want to do. Because to do whatever I want to do is just to be enslaved all over again. To be set free is to actually live to please God and to obey God. That's what true freedom is, because only obeying God results in true joy, peace, and all that we long for. And the Bible tells us that in so many different ways. But what I'd like to do with the time that I have left is help us think about the bigger picture with regard to um, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Because it's one of those... Um, teachings in scripture that's difficult and very much debated. There are some people who would say that uh, there should be no divorce, no remarriage, no exceptions. And that's basically the position that they take. There are others who would say, uh, no, there can be divorce and remarriage if there is adultery. Some some others would say, not only adultery, but what Paul says here, Um, abandonment or desertion, and they would apply it even with regard to believers, not simply uh, with unbelievers, and they would have arguments along those lines. In Jesus' day, when he was dealing with the whole issue of divorce, there were two schools of thought. There was a conservative school that said only in the cases of adultery could you divorce and remarry, There was the liberal school that said, basically, you know, if your wife burns the biscuits, you can divorce her and get another wife. So just like in our day, there are some that are more conservative, there are some that are more liberal in their stance on divorce and remarriage. 
the major opinion, the major perspective that the Christian church has had, and especially among Reformed congregations, is that there's one rule, one man and one woman for life, and there are two exceptions with regard to that that have to do with sexual immorality and the other exception with regard to what we find here in 1 Corinthians 7, which is desertion or abandonment. And the reason why um, people have come to those conclusions is because of applying the principle Scripture interprets Scripture, that if you read what is said in Genesis chapter 2, if you read what is said in Exodus 21 or Deuteronomy 24 or Isaiah 50, Jeremiah 3, I have all these, I think, in your notes, Malachi 2, Matthew 1, and even Matthew 19. If you take all the various things um, that Paul, uh, excuse me, that the Bible says with regard to divorce and remarriage, what you, the picture that you get is you realize that on the one hand, God can say in Malachi, I hate divorce. At the same time, in Jeremiah and Isaiah, he can say, I've given my people a writ of divorce because of their adultery, their spiritual adultery. And so you've got this dynamic where on the one hand, God is saying, yes, I hate divorce, but he's also describing his own actions with his people in terms of divorce. You've got in Exodus 21, uh, a passage where God commands that if a man takes a wife, Um, and then takes another wife, and the first wife is not properly cared for with food and clothing and conjugal rights, that he is to let her go out freely. Meaning that um, there's a certain obligation that needs to be fulfilled in the marriage relationship. And so the rule and I think I have this at the end of your notes, is that marriage is between one man and one woman until the death of one of them. But there is the exception. I want to talk a little bit about the exception um, that um, the Lord Jesus highlights in Matthew 19, Mark 12, uh, 10, I think it is, and other passages. Like I said earlier, um, they come to Jesus and they say, um, can you... Uh, divorce a woman for any reason. And Jesus says from the very beginning that it has not been God's intent. God's intent is for one man, one woman uh, to be together forever, so to speak, and, uh, at least forever in this life. And then they ask him the question in Matthew nineteen seven, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? It's a good question. God who says he hates divorce still commanded through Moses that they could give their wives a writ of divorce. What about that, they ask. And Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. So what is he saying? He's saying God has made a a concession because of the way things are in a fallen world, that things between um, sinners and a marriage can get really bad. And God has allowed some exceptions to the until death do you part 
rule because of how bad things can get and because of the nature of marriage. And so um, you think about what Jesus says. He talks about um, in verse 9 of Matthew 19, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The word for immorality there is pernea. It's a very broad term for sexual immorality. It includes adultery, but it's much broader than adultery. And so people, believers throughout the uh, centuries have wrestled with, how do we look at this? Is God simply saying that if there is literal uh, adultery, that that is the only exception? Or is it broader, as the word implies, to other kinds of sexual immorality? And so there are those who would ask questions like, what about if your husband regularly attends a strip club? What if uh, your husband is regularly viewing pornography? Uh, What if um, your husband sexually abuses your children? Uh, What if your husband or your wife decides to um, become another gender? so to speak. They decide they want to be a, a, um, a woman instead of a man or a man instead of a woman. Um, what about if your husband decides he wants to marry another man or whatever, something along those lines? Um, what do you do? The reality is there are a lot of different things that fall into the category of sexual immorality that are included in that. Obviously, the Lord Jesus talked about the fact that if you look upon another woman in lust for her, you've broken the command not to um, commit adultery. So the question is, what do you do with that? Um, I mean, there are godly men that I know who would say, depending on the situation, pornography use could be grounds for divorce. And so what do we do with that? I think it's very, very clear that the Lord is saying that if your spouse commits adultery with someone else, there there is in that itself grounds for divorce. Divorce is not required, but divorce is permitted under those circumstances. When it comes to other things like pornography use or um, you know attending inappropriate clubs and things like that, I think it comes down to uh, issues of the church is going to be brought into it. We're talking about Christians, right? And the church is going to be brought into those kinds of situations. And there's going to be some process of church discipline. You know, if a believer is doing things like that, he shouldn't be doing. And the question is, is there any repentance at all for those kinds of things. And does the church ultimately have to uh, discipline the church member and treat them like an unbeliever? So those are complicated questions. And, and a lot of people on this topic will say there, it takes the wisdom of Solomon many times to apply the principles that we find in Scripture to very difficult situations and individual situations. What, 
What is really going on in this particular marriage? What is really going on in this particular spouse's life? And has it come to the point where the spouse has legitimate grounds for divorce because of sexual immorality? So there's a lot more that could be said about that, but I think um, it just highlights the fact that in a day where sexual immorality isn't just between one person in the flesh and another person in the flesh, it can be virtual. It can be, there are all kinds of ways to commit sexual immorality and be unfaithful to your spouse. And so how does that come, come to bear in terms of these situations? And so I think we have to recognize that the Lord Jesus has given us a principle to apply, which does not say that divorce has to take place, but it may be permissible depending on what is going on and whether or not there is unrepentance. Because, again, the issue is the hardness of heart. Is there a hardness of heart that is so disrupting the marriage relationship that God in his mercy allows a concession? Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 uh, talks about another exception, which is uh, what you might call abandonment or desertion of different kinds. The reason why I say of different kinds is because there are those who would say that Paul says um, in verse 15, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. And they'll focus on the phrase, in such cases, which means that it's not necessarily one narrow case. It's cases like this. And so it implies that there could be different ways in which um, abandonment or desertion could take place. So what, what might we have in mind there? Well, I think it could be and many people would say it's related to Exodus 21 and the whole idea of not fulfilling your marriage vows with regard to food, clothing, and conjugal rights. You're, you're not fulfilling the basic um, functions of marriage. You, you're totally neglecting your spouse or you're actively abusing your spouse. And so that's why there are those who will talk about what if, um, what if your spouse tries to kill you? That's not mentioned in scripture specifically, but if your spouse tries to take your life, tries to poison you or whatever, is that grounds for divorce? Uh, Puritans like William Perkins would say, yeah, that would be a kind of desertion. That would be a kind of abandonment. Uh, Others will talk about things like drug addictions and gambling addictions and even refusal to provide for the family. Um, there are those like Wayne Grudem uh, who will talk along those lines and they'll say there, there's a kind of desertion that doesn't require the person to leave. They've just deserted the duties uh, that God calls us to in a marriage and they do so in extreme ways that destroy the marriage bond and um, is something that the Lord, by concession, in certain circumstances, will allow there to be a separation. 
Well, like I said, um, not everybody in this room is going to agree, even with what I've just said, because not every Christian agrees on where to draw the line with regard to these kinds of things. But we need to understand that um, the God who hates divorce used divorce terminology with regard to Israel. He gave uh, Moses the direction to allow them to have a certificate of divorce because of people's hardness of hearts, because situations can get so bad and so difficult that God in his mercy provides these things. The, the thing that we would not want to do is to hear God saying, then begin looking for a reason to get out of your marriage. Begin hoping you can find a reason to get out of your marriage. You'd, you'd be totally misreading the Bible, totally misreading 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because Paul is arguing that they stay in their, their relationships, that they maintain relationships even with unbelievers who, in that day and time, those unbelievers in, in the city of Corinth were probably doing all kinds of things that the believer would not have approved of. And yet he encourages them to stay in those situations. And so let me encourage you along these lines. John Piper was asked a question one time. um, What hope would you offer a stressed wife or a stressed husband who is disappointed in their spouse, frustrated with their marriage, and is now considering divorce as an escape out of the frustrations? So we've talked about the rule We've talked about two principles with regard to exceptions, but I want to encourage you with regard to the the overwhelming tenor of Scripture, which is stay together, leave and cleave to your spouse. And uh, Piper makes some interesting comments, and the first comment he makes is that there's probably no more painful relationships in life than marriage relationships and parent-child relationships, that... Um, And those two uh, types of relationships, some of the worst pain can be experienced. And so he starts out by saying, let's not minimize the pain that there can be in marriage. And yet, let's still remember some other truths. And so he talks about the fact that um, some people will say, you know what, when when I got married... um, my husband and, and or myself, we just weren't really even thinking straight. We just, you know, got married on a weekend in Las Vegas and we hardly even thought about it or whatever. There could be all kinds of ways in which people come into a marriage and they think, wow, we weren't really thinking very straight when we did that and we certainly weren't, weren't pursuing the Lord and we weren't, you know, living like we should. And so <clears throat> maybe this is a hopeless situation and we just need to separate and start over. And he says, you may have sinned your way into this relationship, but now that you are married, he's talking to a wife at this point, this man is God's man for you. Which is to say, no matter how you got into the marriage relationship, at, this, at that point, that person you're married to becomes God's will for you. That's who you're to be faithful to. That's who you are to seek to love in that circumstance. He is God's choice for you. And he goes on to say that in the midst of that, depending on how difficult the relationship is, how painful it is, he says, 
We need to believe that the path of lost dreams in this life is the path of greatest joy over all. That our ultimate joy and happiness is not rooted in how much temporal happiness we have in our marriage or otherwise. Our circumstances don't have to change in that respect for us to have supreme joy and even greater joy in God in this life, but especially in the life to come. He says, marriage may disappoint with a thousand tribulations, but hope-filled obedience to God will never, never disappoint us. So what he's saying is, he's saying the same thing Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7. What really matters is keeping the commandments of God. Hope-filled obedience. How does God want me to love this person now that I'm married to them? Now that I see how imperfect they are and how imperfect I am. How am I to trust God? How am I to obey God in these circumstances? With the hope, what hope? That God's going to work it together for my good. And if they're an unbeliever, he might even work it together for their good. And that ultimately, we're not going to come out on the short end of the stick. God is going to do amazing things as we trust him and obey him in those difficult circumstances. And so what he goes on to say is, focus your main heart energies not on fixing the other person's failures, but on deepening your own godly responses to those failures, which is the gospel of grace. Remember the gospel of grace in one part is we are forgiven because of Christ and what he's done for us. Secondly, we have a freedom in Christ that encourages us to know that we can overcome sin now that we're in Christ. And finally, the last part of the gospel of grace is my focus is now not on whether or not people are loving me, but whether or not I'm loving the other people in my life. Because John says in 1 John, we love because everybody else is loving us, right? No, we love because he first loved us. I love other people not because they're loving me, but because God is loving me. And he will always love me as his child. And so therefore, because of God's love for me, I love people in my life, whether it's my spouse or my children or anybody else, regardless of whether or not they're loving me in return. And so that's what uh, Piper is doing here, is reminding uh, this lady of that truth and that God calls us to respond rightly, not just react to other people. And then he also highlights the fact that it says in Matthew 6 that God sees in secret what we do. That even if the person we're loving never says thank you, never acknowledges how we're loving them, never appreciates how we're loving them, God sees in secret. And he will reward us for our hope-filled obedience to love that person, even if they never change, even if they never acknowledge the fact that we're really loving them. He tells a story at the end of um, a woman who came to him uh, like 30 years into his ministry, and she wanted a divorce because his wife, his uh, her, excuse me, her husband was uh, traveling all the time and neglecting her and just not giving her any attention. She was tired of it. She just wanted out. And he pleaded with her to hang in there, to stay in there. And one day, after 30 years or so, maybe 20 years, uh, this woman came to him 
I said, I just want to thank you for encouraging me to stick with it and not to give up and not to divorce my husband. And God did a work in that marriage. And she said, uh, he's building a house out back for my mom right now, and he's blessing me in a way that I can never thank him enough for. And I'm just so thankful that you encouraged me to stay in this relationship because God has done some wonderful things in our relationship. And if I had just jumped ship when I did, I would not have seen God do what he did. And so there is a very real call to trust God to do things that we can't even imagine him doing as we stay faithful to trust and obey in our circumstances. And so that's what Paul is encouraging all of us, that um, in order to be more like Christ, we don't have to change our circumstances. In order to be more joyful and at peace and happy, we don't need to change our circumstances. What we need to do is go deeper with God. We need to go deeper with Jesus. We need to focus on the truth, and we need to pray, and we need to fellowship with the Lord, and we need to fellowship with his people. We need to feed our souls on the truth because it's the truth that sets us free. It's the truth that enables us to rejoice even in difficult circumstances. Like I said, God is compassionate, and sometimes there are some really difficult circumstances. He says, under these circumstances, yes, I will allow a separation. But there are many, many cases where things are difficult, but God says, trust me and obey me in those difficult circumstances. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time in your word. We pray that it would be an encouragement to all of us, whether we're married or not, that it would be an encouragement in light of the fact that all of us have circumstances that we would like to see changed. And we really wonder if we would be better people, holier people if things were different. We really wonder if we would be happier, have more joy and more peace if things were different. And I pray that all of us, whether we're married or not, would see how Paul is encouraging us to to trust you, to trust your promises, to seek to please you in our circumstances, and trust that you'll lead us if there really needs to be a change in our circumstances one way or the other, but that we would fundamentally embrace the fact that what we really need is you. We need you to meet the deepest needs of our heart and the deepest longings of our soul. We need to fellowship more deeply with you. We need to know you better and love you more and know and believe your love for us more. And so I pray that our circumstances would drive us to you and not drive us apart from others. So please, Father, speak to us in light of our own circumstances and where we are and help us to fight with the truth in our own lives and to encourage others to do the same. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you call us to greater joy in you through these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.